My name is Mark Schwartz. I am an enterprise strategist with AWS. I should probably explain what that means. We have a, a small team that I'm part of, of people who are CIOs or CTOs or senior IT leaders of large enterprises before they joined AWS. And we do a, a couple of different things. The uh, thing that keeps us most busy is we, eat, we meet with senior leaders of our large enterprise customers to help them think through, uh, remove impediments around things like change leadership, cultural change, organizational structures, financing models for IT investments. In other words, the non-technical aspects of digital transformation and moving to the cloud. So I meet with about 120 customers a year. My colleagues meet with about the same number each. Um, we also speak at conferences, obviously, and we write books and articles. So I've published three books that you might have seen around, one called The Art of Business Value, one is A Seat at the Table, and the last one was War and Peace in IT, which, uh, as you can gather from the title, was sort of a sequel to Tolstoy's famous novel. Um, I realized reading it that he hadn't really gotten around to talking about digital transformation, probably because he ran out of pages. So I figured I'd better, I'd better fill the gap. So uh, those are the three I've written so far. I'm about to, uh, I'm working on one right now on bureaucracy. And so expect that one next year. I don't know the title yet. Um, so uh, before I joined AWS, I was the CIO at US Citizenship and Immigration Services in the Department of Homeland Security. So I learned a lot about uh, leading change and managing transformations. So I wanna, I wanna share some of uh, what I learned personally and then what I've gathered from talking to other leaders in my role at AWS. And the main point that I wanna make really is this. This is the takeaway. Uh, if, you, if you write this down, you can just leave the session now. There's nothing else. Um, it's that you can lead transformation. And so I'm assuming I'm talking to an audience of people who know the right thing to do and want to drive change in their organizations. And what I learned through my experience is that you can't do this from anywhere in the organization. There are different advantages and disadvantages to being in different positions. When I drove this transformation at USCIS, I was doing it from what you might say is the top down. You can also do it from the bottom up. You can do it from somewhere in middle management. There are lots of different ways to drive transformation with a slightly, uh, not a slightly different, a very different set of tactics in each of them. So uh, first thing I should do is give you a little bit of a sense of what our transformation looked like. So when I first joined the agency, we had an average release cycle time for our main systems of 18 months. We were doing about one release every 18 months. Um, we were doing it so slowly, partly because we had uh, an official government, official Homeland Security SDLC, something called MD-102, Management Directive 102. And it was a very thick document. And it essentially said that we had to be waterfall in the extreme. Uh, it said we had to, for each thing we were building, we had to produce 87 documents. Um, some of those documents, one of those documents alone took 18 months, typically, or longer to produce. Cost us $3 million to outsource writing it. 
Uh, it also said that we had to have 11 gate reviews in the process of releasing software. So things like a system definition review and a high-level design review and a low-level design review and my absolute favorite, the test readiness review, which we had to pass through in order to be allowed to test the system. Um, so you can imagine this was um, set up to be a slow process. It was an extreme waterfall process. And by the time I had left the government, we had moved to the cloud, we had adopted DevOps practices, we had um, re-architected into microservices, and for many of our systems, we were releasing new capabilities about three times a day. So we went from 18 months to three times a day or so. Um, the actual content of our work, I should also mention, so USCIS is the government agency responsible for legal immigration to the United States, so that means things like green cards, uh, naturalization, refugee status, and uh, 95 other things altogether. And uh, they, they, said, they used to say that if you took all the paper that we received each day and stacked it up, this is each day, the stack would be 1.8 times the height of the Statue of Liberty. So we were kind of a paper-based organization. And the vision was to move all, all digital, you know, do digital magic and provide better services to our uh, applicants and improve national security and uh, reduce costs and you know, speed things up. There were a lot of goals behind it. But this, this was the basic idea of what we were doing. Um, so as I said, I, I was leading from the top and I'm gonna try to give you a little sense of what that looked like. But we can, we can really think of this as three different um, uh, sets of tactics that we need. There's the way we can uh, lead a transformation if we're starting with the power of being high in the organization. There are ways to do it if we're somewhere in middle management or trying to go bottom up. There are advantages that we can take advantage of in driving transformation, and there are also disadvantages to all three of these. And uh, what it really comes down to, I found, is that if you're leading from top down, you have a lot of organizational power, but we, what you don't have is you don't actually do anything, right? So you're very far away from the actual activity of rolling out DevOps or whatever it is. On the other hand, if you're leading a sort of grassroots initiative as a, as a builder, as an executor, you're very close to the action. You're the one who's actually uh, setting up a, a CI, CD pipeline or whatever it is, what you don't have is that organizational power to manage the rest of the organization uh, and to drive the change out, scale it out horizontally uh, and all these other things. You don't necessarily have control over budget, et cetera. Um, but there are, um, there are problems that come up no matter which of those directions you're trying to lead change from. But uh, ultimately, what it comes down to is being able to influence other people. And if you're a CIO like I was, you still have to get your, your teams to actually do what it is that you're trying to do. And you have to influence your peers around the organization. You still have people uh, that you report up to. If you're leading from somewhere else, you're going to have to get executive sponsorship at some point. You're gonna have to bring a lot of other people along. So ultimately, you have to sell. You have to influence other people. And uh, we're gonna talk a little bit later about what it means to sell and how you can do it. 
because I know all of us with a technology background are not all that comfortable instinctively when it comes to selling. So we're gonna have to think about how you deal with organizational politics. We're gonna have to think about how you sell ideas comfortably. And we're gonna have to talk about how you get through bureaucracy, which as I said is the topic of my next book. Uh, and these, these three things can sound like painful things to have to deal with if you are a builder and, uh, and you wanna spend your time building. They are, it turns out, necessary, no matter where you're leading change from. And even when you are, in theory, at the top of the organization, you're not at the top of the organization. As CIO, typically you would report to a, a CEO, CFO, or whoever it is. CEO has to really answer to a board. The board really has to answer to the shareholders. So it's always necessary to influence up, even if you think you're up. So, uh, to talk a little bit about what it looked like from my perspective, trying to drive change from, from the top of an organization down. Uh, first thing is I, sh I should explain, um, when I say top of the organization, what that really means. This was the government, and government tends to be very hierarchical. It's a very deep hierarchy, and there's a lot of respect for authority. As CIO, I was uh, what they call an SES, Senior Executive Service Member. So if you're familiar with the way the government uh, hires civil servants, there's GS1 to GS15, those are the levels. And then there's something called the senior executive service that's above all of those levels. And it was set up so that there was some sort of parity between civilians and military. They didn't want the civilian leaders to feel like they were inferior to somebody in the military who had a, a big fancy title. And so they declared that the senior executive service, which I was a member of, was the equivalent of a two-star general, approximately. So uh, I was a two-star general, which is pretty amusing um, to me, anyway. Um, effectively, um, that, that was you know, how you measure where I was in the hierarchy. Uh, so with this very formal hierarchy and um, respect for authority, I had that position of power where uh, anything I asked people to do, they would do, and that was very unfortunate in a lot of cases. So uh, I'll tell you a story in a minute. Uh, but when you, when you are driving change from that sort of position, um, what I saw that you really had to do, and I saw this in the other leaders as well, is to set a very strong vision of where you were going. That's sort of a cliche, we all know that. But then you have to reinforce that vision very consistently. So a big mistake that I see leaders make when I, when I meet with customers is they say, we're gonna go to the cloud because that's gonna make us really fast and responsive and you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna increase our pace and reduce our lead times and all of that. And then they take three years to make the decision to go to the cloud, right? What, what, is that, what does that message send? What's the message that gets sent there? Is that, nah, urgency is not really part of it, right? So uh, a lot of what I had to learn to do is to constantly reinforce the message that we were going to the cloud so that we could be more responsive and we could move quickly and reduce our lead times. Now, you might wonder uh, why that's important in the government. Um, I mean, the government is, is known for its speed, of course, um, but it's not clear if you're not in a competitive situation, why is it so important to move quickly? 
So uh, I'll tell you this little story. I was watching the news one evening, and President Obama came on. This was during the Obama administration, and he announced DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, his signature initiative, it turned out to be. And he also said that he was planning to roll it out in 60 days. This was the first I'd heard of it, number one. Number two, I was the one who was going to have to roll it out in 60 days. Number three, he hadn't asked me if it was possible. Um, it, turned, it turned out that we had to make changes to 20 to 25 legacy systems, pretty substantial bunch of changes. It uh, was occurring when we had a release cycle time of 18 months or so, so you can do the math there. Um, 60 days was, was unlikely. Um, of course we did it in 60 days, because the president said we should. Um, so you figure out a way. Um, the way was, you know, disregard all controls that you put in place and everything else, you know, just uh, uh, run around, do it, take shortcuts, whatever. Uh, and I had some fantastic people who just did it somehow. But we realized that this is just not sustainable. We're in immigration. Immigration is going to change a lot. It's a political football. There might be comprehensive immigration reform, and when it comes, guess what? Somebody's going to say we have to roll it out in 60 days. So we knew we had to shrink our lead time somehow. The, the transformation was important, especially around speed. And to keep that right in front of people's faces all the time turned out to be an important component of it. Uh, leadership is in a great position to remove impediments, right? Uh, the, they called me the nuclear option, and a lot of my people were afraid to tell me when there was an impediment because they knew I would just use all my command and control authority to make it go away. But sometimes that's what you got to do, right? Um, it's also important to realign incentives. Sometimes uh, people talk, and I, I just hate this term, people talk about the frozen middle with the idea being the builders know what they need to do and they want to do it, and senior leadership wants to see a change, and it's the middle that gets in the way, right? Uh, they refuse to change. Really, what's happening in those cases is a failure of top leadership because the middle is going to continue to do what they've been told they should do uh, and incentivized to do, and there is no way to get the organization to change, especially from, from the middle levels, unless you, you realign the incentives and the goals, uh, which we had to spend a lot of time doing. For example, we had a great QA group that used to get in the way of everything that we wanted to do transformationally because they said, um, you know, we know these software developers. They're horrible. They put bugs in their code, you know, and every time they say they're ready to go to production, there are all these bugs, and we find them and tell them they have to go back and fix them. If, if we stop getting in the way at the end of the release cycle, what kind of garbage is going to go to production? And uh, they were right, in a way, um, which tells you something important. So uh, the trick to driving that transformation was to talk to the QA people and say, you, you got your mission a little bit wrong. Um, you're, you're on the right track, but really your job is to make sure that everything is produced everything that's produced is produced at a high level of quality, right? And that should go to the, uh, to the users of the systems. So your job is to make sure it's produced with a high level of quality. So if you were to come in at the end of the release and test things and say the quality is not there, that, that means you failed, right? Uh, because your job is to make sure it's actually produced with quality. And, um, you know, of course, 
as usual, they said CIO's crazy, you know, they went out and grumbled in the hallways or whatever. Um, but with that reorientation, they came back to me with a lot of great ideas about how they could ensure quality even before uh, the release cycle was over, is it, you know, ensure quality as things were being built. They said, well, how about, um, you know, the developers are going to be writing their own automated tests. Maybe we should periodically do a sampling of those tests and make sure that they're good tests and testing the right things and then give feedback or something. You know, they had a whole bunch of good ideas. Uh, lately, they've actually been presenting at conferences on some new te techniques they've created, which I think are pretty brilliant. Um, I'm going to sort of exaggerate what they produce to give you an idea of directionally what I think it is. Um, they instrumented the source control system and Jenkins and everything to produce lots of data about what was going on in the development process. And then they fed that into a machine learning model to predict defects. And uh, they tried to find, is there, are there drivers that tend to predict defects so that they can get involved earlier? Um, and uh, they, they found correlations, you know, this, this system, uh, if they do a lot of um, check-ins late in the day, it tends to uh, result in, in uh, quality issues. So um, to me, that was, that was sort of brilliant thinking where they were able to come up with something that I hadn't as the leader trying to drive the change. So the trick really was to reorient their incentives so that they could actually be creative on how to do the transformation. Um, so from that senior position, you also have the ability to move across the organization and coordinate with others and um, influence people around the organization. And uh, the big key thing, I think, is that assuming the risk as a leader you have to be able to take the risk away from the people in the organization who are going to be making the change because it's not fair. I mean, it's going to hold them back. So when we started to work in ways that this MD-102 uh, didn't seem to support, I didn't want my people to be afraid that somebody was going to come after them personally for violating the terms of MD-102. I said, I'll take care of this one. You know, don't worry about it. Uh, it's, my, it's my risk. Um, now, the problem, as I implied before, though, is if you're leading top-down, then you are saying things into empty air, right? I was managing 2,000 people, and uh, so generally I was not talking directly to them. And it turned out that there was this uh, sort of game of telephone going on where uh, I would say something to the next layer in the hierarchy, they would whisper it to the next layer, they would whisper it to the next layer, and then by the time it got to the people who were actually implementing, it was a completely different message. And uh, a classic example of this was outside my office door, there, were, there was this table, and there were all these awards that, that my IT folks had won because this is the government, you don't get bonuses, right? So they're big on little prizes and awards. And um, it, it was a little um, uh, uncomfortable to walk past it because the awards were for things like uh, the Plain Language Award or the uh, Neem Compliance Award for complying with the right structure for personal information or you know, those kinds of things. And so just jokingly as I walked by, I said, you know, we gotta get some better awards. Uh, the next day, the table was gone, the trophies were gone, everything was gone, 
And uh, then a couple of days later when I was talking to somebody in the organization, they said, oh, we heard that you, you don't like our awards. Uh, and so I had created like a, a crisis <laughs> um, and, and a lot of um, unhappy people accidentally. But that, that's kind of what happens uh, when you're leading a large organization. So the trick to mitigating that was this walking around idea or actually talking to a lot of people to try to get a feedback loop going. So I knew what people were actually hearing when I, when I was pushing in a certain direction. So um, that's, with that, I'm gonna leave leading from the top because that's the easy one. But how about if you're trying to lead change from somewhere in the middle of an organization and the big advantage that you typically have is you have a scope of control. And within that scope of control, you have a certain amount of freedom. And you can use that amount of freedom to, uh, to build things that are going to help you influence the rest of the organization. So a classic way of doing that is through what's called a skunk works project. So you've got control of something. And it's very easy to have things going on within your scope that the rest of the organization doesn't necessarily get involved in. Uh, and if you can use that to produce a proof of concept or something else that demonstrates value and uh, most importantly reduces risk for the rest of the organization, then you're way ahead in trying to influence people to make a change. Uh, important caveat though, a Skunk Works project is not meant to be sneaky. And uh, it kind of sounds that way, right? You're gonna hide, sort of hide the fact that this project's going on. That's not really what you should be doing. What you're trying to do in a Skunk Works project is take advantage of the fact that we can deliver or we can experiment at a fast pace, inexpensively, at low risk. So essentially what you're trying to do is work within the, uh, the area that you have control over in ways that are small enough that they don't materially add to the risk or cost. So if you're gonna do something that materially adds to your risk or cost, there should be some sort of oversight. But if we're talking about uh, within the margins of error, you know, um, find a way to speed up this task and reapply the resources, um, then we're, we're really talking about working within the, the scope of authority that you've been given. So the idea isn't so much the secrecy, it's flying under the radar because the risk is so low. And a great example that I saw, and a lot of what I'm telling you has to do with um, the people who are in my organization, how they made me see the light, you know, how they, how they drove change and influenced me. Uh, so one day, one of my employees, a, a fairly senior manager, who typically worked in Vermont while I was in Washington, D.C., he happened to be in DC, he came into my office, he said, let me show you something. Uh, and, and he showed me this little backpack, a uh, little day pack, and he said, uh, this, is, this is network in a, network in a backpack, and um, we can use it for our refugee officers who have to go out and interview refuge, refugees in refugee camps around the world. So let's say, um, what was it called? There's a big one in northern Kenya, in the middle of the desert. So when you're there, of course, your, your equipment has to be ruggedized to deal with those desert conditions uh, and all the bad things that are gonna happen to it. So he, had, he spilled out all the stuff that was in his little day pack, and he showed me that you could use this to build a secure, rugged network for the refugee camp that um, 
you couldn't destroy it. Uh, and it would find connectivity somehow. It would try every possible source of connectivity. You know, can it get a cell signal somewhere, can it, whatever. And if it couldn't find anything else, it would go to satellite. And by the way, uh, we could completely control it from Washington, D.C. And, uh, and so this is the perfect thing to, to send our officers out with so that they can communicate with each other and, and do their data entry and the other things they need to do. So um, it was brilliant. I had no idea he was working on it. I, I was certainly not going to be angry that he had spent some time on this because it was a wonderful solution to a business problem. Um, but maybe the most important thing from the leader's perspective is that there was no risk anymore because he had shown me that it, it could actually work. I, he probably tried a few things before he got exactly the right set of components together. But as a decision maker, one of the big things you've got to focus on, of course, is the risk. And here he was with a really good proof of concept that essentially was the final product that we could roll out. And so he had reduced all of my risk, and it was easy for him to convince me that this would be a good idea because the business value was obvious, the risk was low, he knew how much it cost, and so on. So that's, that's an example of how you can work from this middle management position, I think, to drive the change. So um, with that uh, sort of level of control, there are certain things that nobody is really going to question. For example, um, if you decide to automate deployments, well, who's, like, is, is the CFO or the CEO going to come in and say, no, don't automate deployments? I mean, they don't care, right? It's within, entirely within your scope. And in a DevOps transformation, there are lots of things that one can do that aren't necessarily a, a challenge for the rest of the organization. Some things are. So, and then, of course, you have to sell, um, which is, is one of my themes. So let's say that you are a builder, an actual executor, hands-on, and you know there's this great DevOps thing that you want to do, and you want to get the entire company to, um, to move in that direction. Well, the first advantage that you have is that you're actually the only one who does things, right? You're the only one who can actually make the change. Um, and so within the scope of what you can do, there's, there are plenty of ways that you can start things along in that direction, perhaps automating some of the tasks that you do routinely or that your teammates need to do um, or... Um, uh, just about anything that has to do with personal productivity, right? I could do this much faster if I automated away the toil or if I put in place some sort of monitoring that would tell me in advance when something is about to crash or, you know, all these other things that are going to be good practices in the DevOps transformation that um, you can start doing and then use your having done them and having results as a way to influence managers up the chain that this is this works there isn't risk you know it's already done here's a here's a prototype i've already done the hard stuff on it so um, there's a there's a sort of collateral risk reduction that you don't often think about but if i'm a, a manager and i want to launch an initiative or i want to say yes to an initiative that somebody has proposed one of the big dangers for me is that they'll start doing that initiative and then lose interest, right? What I want to know is that I've got people who are committed to doing this. And if I know I've got people who are committed, then my risk is much lower 
and I can confidently make decisions to proceed. So just having implemented some change that moves things in the right direction is a, is a sign of commitment, and that resonates up an organization. But when it comes down to it, everybody's got to sell. You know, you've got the great ideas, and you're going to have to bring other people on board. And uh, you know, I talked a little bit about when you're doing it from the top, I somehow had to get QA on board. You, know, you might think I, I had all the power of you know, being a two-star general, but you still gotta somehow get people on board. So it winds up being a selling task and a bureaucracy busting and a po politics manipulation sort of a task to drive change. But it's not as hard as it sounds. So I've seen, uh, I've seen people fail at selling ideas, and I've seen people succeed, and I've had people try to sell me on ideas. So I have a little bit of a sense of what works. And the first thing I want to say is a, a big mistake that I see often is not being conscious of what your ask is. So if you go to a, a, I don't know, CFO, you're not trying to convince the CFO to let you do daily stand-ups, right? That, it doesn't matter, you can do daily stand-ups. In fact, most of the things that you're going to do, you don't need from the CFO. So uh, the mistake that I see is going into somebody in a senior position and trying to sell Agile or sell DevOps. You know, Hey, Agile is, is great you know, because the waterfall way of doing things doesn't work. And, you know, instead, we can have backlogs and you know, sprints and whatever. Well, it, it doesn't matter. That's, that's the wrong thing to be selling. Maybe what you need from the CFO is some flexibility in how money is put into, invested into projects or something else. But the first step in selling is to be clear what your ask is and then tailor the presentation to that rather than starting out by trying to sell being agile. You know, here's the agile manifesto and here are the principles that go with the manifesto probably not important to most of the people that you're trying to sell to. Um, it's a good idea to frame the things that you are saying in terms of success, not in terms of theoretical, it's a better idea kind of thing. So if we implement this, we can speed up the time it takes us to get products to market. Or if we, if we do this, it's going to reduce costs in the following ways, and it has to be real cost reductions. That uh, point about mitigating risk, really big one, right? This is what you want to present when you're selling an idea, is there, there's no risk, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, because here's a proof of concept, we've already mitigated the risk, or we've already identified where the real risks are, and here's how we're going to mitigate them. Uh, and then um, this last one, I, I have this argument with people a lot, so you'll probably um, disagree with me on this. but. Um, we tend, between us here, we talk in a certain way that is not necessarily the way that's gonna read well with a CEO or a CFO. We talk about failing fast, for example, and we all know what we mean by failing fast. A CFO, a CEO does not want to fail fast. They don't wanna fail at all, that's their job to make sure they don't fail, right? Um, what we really mean by failing fast is not failing fast. What we mean by failing fast is proving out an idea before we fully invest in it, right? It means let's, instead of going big on this idea, 
let's try to see if it actually is going to work by doing a small test if possible and only invest the big chunk after we've done that. That's what, that's what failing fast really means, right? And so to a CEO, this should be a great thing. We're going to mitigate the risk of our spending by first testing our idea before we fully invest in it. Um, sometimes we go into it thinking, oh, no, we've got to change the corporate culture. We have to get people comfortable with failure. We, we don't, actually. <laughs> um, uh, maybe they will become more comfortable with failure as we do our transformation, where failure means you try a number of experiments and not all of them turn out to be, uh, turn out to have great results. But ultimately, it's not failure that you're after. It's success by testing ideas as you can commit more and more to them. So um, as an example of what selling can sound like, I'm going to give you a really exaggerated, actually, I think it's not that exaggerated, uh, my conversation with a line of business leader when I was trying to get that line of business to cooperate with a, a DevOps sort of approach. So uh, first thing I did was I, I chose the line of business that never got any attention from IT, right? Because it's going to be an easier sell there. And there's always one because they're lower priority because of something. In this case, refugee program, unfortunately, because it, it only handled 80,000 people a year, where the agency as a whole took in 8 million applications a year. So it was very small, tended not to get a lot of attention. So the conversation I had with the line of business leader was something like this. I said, you know how we never pay attention to you or do any work for you? Um, would it be OK if I have my team work on some of your critical objectives? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and uh, you know how we usually go away for a year or two years and then give you back something? Uh, would it be OK if we actually give you some business results next week? Uh, and then incrementally after that. Would that be okay? Yeah, okay. Um, and you know how sometimes your people tell my people what they need, and my people go away and give you back something that's not what you really wanted, right? How about, um, would it be okay if you're, you put people there to sit with my team and make sure they work on the right things? Is that okay? Uh, yeah, okay, fine. Well, you know how I said we're going to have business results next week. Here's a, here's a dashboard that shows your, your key metrics. And why don't we just set up a meeting for next week to review how much your key metrics have changed? Yeah, yeah OK, I guess. Um, great. I have this DevOps and cloud thing. You know, it's going to do that. So the cell, I mean, she couldn't say no, right? <laughs> um, there's no way to say no to something like that. And I could say that, I, I could have that conversation honestly because there's a reason why I'm rolling out DevOps, and it's that it's going to lead to business success. And I am going to be able to show results next week because we have the cloud for provisioning infrastructure, we have a CI CD pipeline, everything's all set up to start going. And my people can work with her people and just start delivering small increments tomorrow. And we're going to prioritize things that actually make a difference in the metrics. And so why shouldn't we be able to do it? So the point is that I'm selling a benefit that I have confidence in because there's a reason why I'm doing DevOps. And the benefits essentially sell themselves. That's your ideal in a selling situation. So notice I didn't sell DevOps in the sense of 
we're going to have automated testing and we're going to have automated deployments and blah, 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 right? The, the cell for DevOps around the enterprise is we're going to be much more responsive, we're going to be faster, uh, we're going to be able to test out ideas before you spend too much money on them, whatever it is, and, and that's the conversation. So uh, a little interactive game now. Um, what I'd like to do is take a statement that I might have heard people make to, let's say, a senior leader and ask you for help. How, how would I say this if I was going to talk to that line of business leader or a CFO or a CEO? And I want to say, we have a backlog that gets groomed by a product owner. What is maybe a better way to say that? Anybody with a loud voice? What about it? Identify the priorities. So we're going to identify priorities. Um, good. Anything else? From your area. We're going we're gonna to deliver value to you by prioritizing the things that are most important to you, right? Something like that. Um, I, yeah. So I, that's the point of the grooming, right? So uh, I like that. Uh, what I actually said was, we can shift course on a dime to meet the company's needs. That's it. You know, nice and simple. But the other answers were, were good, too. Let's do this one. I already gave you a good clue on this one, but you can try it yourself. Uh, we encourage people to fail fast. What would be a better way to say it? <laughs> Don't just copy my words. Uh, we do encourage people to test often, right? Uh, we're going to test before we do something stupid. I like that. Okay. What else? We power innovation. Um, so it's not that we want to fail fast. It's that we want to try ideas because we want to encourage innovation. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that one in the next slide. Um, all right. I, I actually wrote... Uh, we mitigate risk by trying different approaches and seeing which is most effective. All right. We do a sprint review every two weeks. Yes, I have heard people go to the CEO and say things like this. Uh, anybody got a better one? I heard a few different ones. Um, I heard something from around there somewhere. What was it? We're going to deliver business value every two weeks. What else? Yeah, we're going to we're going to demonstrate that we've delivered value essentially. What else? We're going to get feedback, right? Um, even even that, I, I think that's a good way to start talking about business benefits. But why do I care about feedback, right? Ultimately, what's the, what's the value going to be there, f be for me as a CEO? You know, why do I care about the feedback? So let me see how I did. Uh, yeah, I was a little wordy. I said, there are frequent checkpoints with users and their managers to make sure we're on course and to provide transparency. By the way, if you'd like to, you can attend one of these. Yeah, OK. <laughs> this is a big one. We don't use Gantt charts or deliver on a schedule. <laughs> so I am assuming that you're laughing because you're thinking that this probably is not a good thing to say to a CFO, all right? This is not selling a benefit. 
so how can we sell the benefit? Ooh, I wish. <laughs> I don't want to overpromise. Um, yeah, but no, I think uh, I, I think the way I would uh, take that one is uh, that instead of trying to do things on a schedule, we're trying to do them as quickly as possible. And isn't that better? What else? What metrics? Okay, we can gather metrics as we go, uh, and there are a lot of other metrics besides delivery on a schedule. So here are some other metrics that maybe would be more important to you. Adaptable and flexible. Um, yes, but um, if I'm a CFO, I would still say you're adaptable and flexible, so how do I control this? Like, are you just gonna go, Adaptability and flexibility all by itself isn't a full solution. I need some way as a company to make sure you're adaptable and flexible to the things I care about. So maybe we need to add a little bit to that one. Let me see how, when I was tired in preparing this presentation, I decided to, uh, okay. We emphasize speed and deploy new capabilities as soon as they're ready and fully tested rather than working backwards from a due date. So. That's the uh, as soon as possible direction I went in also. <laughs> There's a scrum master and a product owner. Uh, obviously important to some of us. Um, by the way, I'm not a fan of scrum, so if somebody wants to give me a good argument about that afterwards, I'm happy to. <laughs> um, so okay, what's a better way to say there's a scrum master and a product owner? Yeah. So we take advantage of people who are experts already in what this product needs to do, and they play a big part, uh, as opposed to the good old days when you wrote down a lot of requirements, tossed them over the wall, and then it was just technologists after that. What else? Yeah, we're gonna constantly keep the team focused. Um, slight weakness with that is, um, it's a little bit of inside business, right? Your, your IT, you should be met keeping the team focused, right? <laughs> I mean, I just assume that as a CEO. Um, so that's the, the little weakness with that one, perhaps. Um, but uh, in my answer, I know I left out the Scrum Master because I hate the idea of Scrum Masters, uh, but I did talk about the product owner. Um, so our team's focused on delivering value. There's someone representing the business users who's deeply involved and make sure each capability is something that adds business value. Uh, I don't act, I don't know. I could talk about business value forever. I'm not sure I like my answer that much there. Um, okay, well, we're gonna use an agile or DevOps approach. Who cares? Um, what, but, but it's the important thing, right? That's exactly what we're trying to do. So um, somebody tell me that you're gonna use an agile DevOps approach uh, in a way that I care about. Yeah, we're gonna involve a, a nice cross-section of people and make sure they're delivering value. We're trying to improve our quality of care and we are taking chaos out of our development. Taking the chaos out of the development, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't really wanna know that development is chaos if I'm a CEO, but, but your point is well taken. I, it is chaos, you know, though. There, there is a fact there. So um, 
well, look, there's a lot of change and uncertainty in our environment, all kinds of things are going on, and we're gonna, we're gonna manage that uncertainty and rapid change through a process like this, maybe, and thereby, that's what's missing, and thereby reduce the risk and get to market quicker. Anything else? Yeah, I think that's an important factor. Transparency into seeing the product evolve rather than waiting till the end to see something. Um, so this essentially is your elevator pitch, right? You're, you're on the elevator with the CEO. You have your big chance to really drive change in the organization. What are you gonna say? Um, I have another wordy answer. Uh, we're gonna break the, works into, the work into small chunks that we can complete quickly and deliver. And we're gonna take advantage of that as a way to manage risk and make sure that we're always on track. We think it's important to give the company flexibility because things change and we wanna reduce the cost of change. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm vocally self-critical, it's an Amazonian thing. Um, a little bit wordy. But uh, you know, I think all of these things are meant to express the true benefit that this other person is going to see from it right, like the, the head of my line of business, what the benefit you're gonna see is you start to get results next week and you have a way to control what my people are doing, essentially, to make sure that they're doing the things that are important to you. Uh, and it's that notion of communicating the benefits that's the really important thing. Um, so what I wanna emphasize here is we're not just talking about wording. This isn't about wording. This is about communicating the benefits that matter to the other person. And um, it's easy to make this mistake, uh, it's another thing that I see a lot, of assuming that if you go to the CFO and talk about ROI, um, that's, uh, you know, CFOs are dumb and they can only think ROI, um, which is not the case at all. And in fact, if you do start talking about ROI, they're gonna, they're gonna pursue, you know, they're gonna ask follow-up questions because they can see right through you. Um, the important thing is that you're aligning with something that the CFO cares about and you're communicating in everyday language how, uh, how that alignment is there. So um, just as a, as a last point here, uh, I, I spend a lot of time with senior executives. That's mostly what I do in my job. And I hear from them what are the things that are on their minds today. And um, obviously, they're, they're, you know, the CEO is not thinking about technical debt or microservices or thing, you know, it's really important that we get some microservices. I don't think so. Um, they are thinking about things like costs and revenues and risks. And you're in a, a very good position trying to sell up the organization if you are addressing those things that they're thinking about. So uh, I, I have found that these four things tend to be what's on the minds of senior executives. The first thing is they need a growth story for the company. So capital markets, financial markets value companies that have a growth story more than companies that are coasting, right? And so the board of directors is saying, we need to have a growth story, CEO figure out how we're gonna grow. And uh, turns out that with DevOps, we've got a pretty good story around this. Um, we're gonna help foster innovation by number one, getting to market quickly, but number two, being able to try out ideas, fail fast, 
um, and, uh, and try out a portfolio of ideas, ideas double down on the ones that work. And uh, so we're gonna contribute to the top line that way. That's the only way you're gonna get there. Second thing, be future ready. So the board is saying, we know industries are being disrupted. We don't wanna be like Blockbuster or some other company that disappears because they didn't keep up with change. So how are we gonna make sure that we can keep up with change? Great story, right? I got this DevOps thing. Um, in order to keep up with change, you need to be agile, nimble, flexible, responsive. Uh, you need to have short lead times for responding to change that you perceive in the environment around you. You need to be able to respond to competitors' moves uh, quickly and appropriately. Turns out we've got this great DevOps thing that lets you do that. Um, third thing, we got to manage compliance, uh, uh, security, and these other big risks. You know, we, we hear all these scary stories about hackers doing these terrible things. We got to make sure the company is mitigating those risks. Aha, great idea. We've got DevOps. Um, it turns out, uh, I, I often tell this story when I'm talking to CISOs. Uh, I, I do this mind reading act with CISOs. I say, I bet I know what your chief security concerns are. Um, you're thinking too many people have privileged access to production, right? And uh, I wait, I'm getting the vibe. Um, I know, you don't patch often enough, right? It's, a, it's this amazing mind reading thing I do. Um, so it turns out that um, with DevOps, uh, we actually used an immutable infrastructure sort of approach to take away production access from everybody. Nobody can access production. Uh, because if they want to make a change to production, they got to go back to source control, make their change there, run it through the test pipeline, deploy a new version, tear down the old one. So why do they need access to production? I know, you're probably thinking they need access to production because they need to look at the logs to diagnose problems. Ha, no. Make sure those logs are in Splunk or some other SIM tool, right? And look at the logs there. So uh, we got rid of privileged access. Can we patch more often? Well, we don't patch more often because we're afraid it's gonna break something. Uh, we've got a good automated test suite now, a, a good regression test suite, so we know when we're patching whether it's gonna break something or not. If not, we patch right away. If it is gonna break something, we figure out what's gonna break and fix it right away so we can patch much more often. Uh, I'm just giving some examples, but um, we know that using these new techniques, we can actually improve the security posture of the company. We can improve compliance. We can put in place automated guardrails for compliance and things like that. I'm not telling you how to say it. You know, I wouldn't use these words. Um, but the point is that we have a good story around it, and we just have to communicate that. And then the last thing is uh, all enterprise leaders are thinking, we got a ton of data in our databases. Uh, you know, I bet it's really worth something if we could figure out how to use it. And, um, and that's, you know, a, a universal concern is uh, we, we just need to unlock all this value. Great. Uh, our customer, FISMA, I love the way, uh, not FISMA, FINRA, uh, I love the way they talk about it. Um, the CISO there says he's trying to lower the cost of curiosity for the people in his organization. Um, which I think is a brilliant way to think about agility and DevOps and, and a lot of our contemporary things that we do. Uh, there's this data, and 
there were barriers to using it. Maybe it was structured based on old transactional needs and it's in a structure that makes it hard to access. Or maybe some of it's unstructured and we don't have the tools available to look at the unstructured data. Well, uh, we can address all these things now and we can lower that cost of curiosity so that people around the company can find good ways to use that data and extract business value from it. So um, typically these are the conversations that, that I'm having and that my team is having with the senior enterprise leaders around why they want to move to the cloud, why they want to encourage this DevOps transformation and these other things that their CIOs are trying to do. Uh, and it's, it's not because these are good practices, it's not because they're best practices, it's none of that. It's because we're gonna help you have a growth story, we're gonna help you survive disruption, we're gonna help you manage those scary risks that are out there, and we're gonna help you figure out how to unlock the value that you've already got in your databases. So, um, to wrap it up, you can do it. Um, if you're trying to drive a change, you need to take advantage of those things that uh, are, you're given advantages, essentially. You need to figure out how to influence others around the organization because even if you're in that senior position, you still need to do it anywhere you're driving transformation from. But it's easier than it sounds. It's really a matter of communicating the benefits rather than what you're doing. You know, it's the, it's the why, not the how. And uh, then the ideas sell themselves. Like, do you want results next week? Um, yeah, I guess so, right? Um, so ultimately, you've got to deal with those influencing people concerns, but it's not as hard as it sounds at first. So uh, be encouraged. That's my closing message for you. Um, oh, I have new slides added to the end of my deck. You should all learn DevOps with AWS training and certification, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right, thank you.